Infections occur when foreign invaders take root in the human body. When most people think of infections, they think of bacteria and viruses. These, however, are not the only invaders that our body has to watch out for. Fungi are also able to cause disease in humans. You may all be familiar with mild fungal infections, such as athlete's foot and yeast infections. Some fungi, however, can cause life-threatening illnesses. One such fungus, Histoplasma capsulatum, is capable of causing severe respiratory infections. Two fun guys and a fun gal, Dr. Anita Sill from UCSF, chat about how this fungus gets into our body and how we clear it. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I am your host, Austin Perry. And I'm Craig Ennis, and we are joined today by Dr. Anita Sill, a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for coming out and joining us today. I'm really excited to be here. So if you could just start off and just tell us a little bit more about yourself, who you are, and what you study. So I'm a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, as you mentioned, and I run a research lab there, and we study a fungal pathogen, Histoplasma capsulatum, and we think about its basic biology. So it is a soil organism, um, and when the soil is disturbed, fragments of these uh, long interconnected chains of cells that make up this fungus um, can get inhaled and then cause disease in a mammalian host. And so we think about how the organism switches from a soil form to a host form, and then when it's in, once it's inside a mammal, how does it um, bypass the immune response and cause disease? So fungi can make these elaborate um, mats of connected multicellular structures called mycelia, and histoplasma in the soil will grow in this interconnected fashion and make kind of a my, um elaborate mycelial structure, and that form of the organism will produce aerosolizable spores. What's really interesting about histoplasma is its ability to exist in two different forms in the soil and in the human host. Anita mentions that in the soil, histoplasma forms mycelia. These are long interconnected mats of cells that you can think of as a tangled up web. When the soil is disturbed, this web is broken up into tiny pieces that you can then inhale. This is how histoplasma gets into the lungs where it can wreak havoc. So this is the infectious form of the organism, really, and it seems like these fungal cells communicate with each other, and, you know, as a mycelium, the cells are growing, or that, that sort of uh, multicellular organism really is growing in all kinds of different directions and trying to find nutrients. So then when the soil is disturbed, fragments of those long chains of cells can break off um, and associated spores also can um, become aerosolized and then that slurry of cells is kind of inhaled by a mammal whether that's a rodent or a human and inside the environment of the host um, the cells respond to the change in temperature and change their growth program and grow unicellularly as yeast cells. They're part of this group of fungi called um, thermally dimorphic fungi or systemic dimorphic fungal pathogens. They have a few different names. Mm -hmm. When an organism has two distinct forms, it is referred to as dimorphic. Histoplasma is known as a dimorphic fungus. 
When it is living in the soil, it exists as long filamentous cells forming that mycelia mentioned earlier. However, the human body is much warmer than the environment. When the fungus gets inhaled, it senses the elevated temperature of the host, causing it to revert to its spherical yeast form. Um, and for histoplasma, those yeast cells get taken up by immune cells. So we have immune cells such as macrophages whose job it is to scavenge microbes that might enter the human body. And usually the macrophage will take up those cells, those microbes, and they, the macrophage will kill those microbes using a whole arsenal of antimicrobial effectors. But in the case of histoplasma, those yeast cells get taken up by the macrophage and they have unknown mechanisms that we're trying to explore that subvert or avoid those antimicrobial defenses and instead the yeast cells replicate inside the macrophage. So they'll make copies of themselves and, you know, sort of use the macrophage as, as a home to hide out from the rest of the immune system. And then once the histoplasma get to some critical level, they trigger actively, we think, lysis of that macrophage, and then the histoplasma are free to get taken up by more um, naive phagocytes or immune cells, who, again, whose job it is to take up these you know, kind of foreign uh, invaders, and that cycle starts again. Macrophages and phagocytes are white blood cells that serve as one of your first lines of defense against foreign invaders. You can think of them as cellular versions of a Pac-Man, but instead of eating fruits, they wander around eating infectious agents, in this case, Histoplasma capsulatum. However, the fungus has evolved some unique mechanisms that allow it to survive digestion and even cause the macrophage to burst, much like a Pac-Man when he encounters a ghost and dies. Once, once we get a chance as, as mammals, though, to develop a specific immune response to Histoplasma, then the infection can come under you know, more control where the macrophages become activated and gain the ability to restrict some of the, that histoplasma replication. But it's, it also can be the case that the organism, the histoplasma is never completely cleared and it can persist in the host for many years in a more inert form. But if the immune system of the host declines, then the organism can reactivate and cause disease again. So um, it really is a very interesting program that the fungus adopts inside the host that allows it to both grow in a form that can be, you know, intracellular inside our immune cells and then persist for, for decades uh, without getting cleared. So... Where in the body does histoplasma cause infections? Uh, so you mentioned spores. Is it in the lung or does it uh, spread to anywhere else in the body? Yes, histoplasma does spread from the lung. So um, one thing that's interesting about it is that it can cause a range of disease. So a person might not ever know that they've had an infection or they can have sort of generic symptoms. Once histoplasma enters the body, it can cause an infection known as histoplasmosis. This infection can be entirely asymptomatic or cause general flu-like symptoms such as dry cough, fever, chills, headaches, and muscle pains. In the most extreme cases, histoplasmosis can even result in death. But even in the case where a person has no symptoms, the organism still spreads from the lungs. So because it gets taken up by macrophages and these cells can also move around um, and tend to go to certain sites in the body, histoplasma will 
almost always go from the lungs where it ends up initially because it's inhaled into the body. Um, so it will spread from the lungs to the liver and the spleen. Um, and then from there, you know, in the case of a healthy person who has inhaled a large dose of spores, um, there can be spread to other sites and the organism can cause disease in the GI tract or the adrenal glands, you know, a number of different end organs in, in the host. But you almost always see that spread from the liver, of, excuse me, from the lungs to the liver and spleen, um, even if there's no overt um, symptomology associated. So a follow-up question from something we talked about earlier. So these are fungal infections, right? So how are these treated if the immune system is unable to uh, take care of the infection? Yeah, so there are, the, um, there are a lot of different types of antifungal therapies, um, some of which work better for certain fungal pathogens than others. So all of the existing antifungals try to target differences between fungal cells and our own cells. So I had mentioned earlier that there are actually many similarities between fungal cells and human cells, and that's one of the reasons that fungi have been a great model system to study basic processes that are also happening in our own cells, like how the DNA copies itself, how genes are expressed, um, how RNAs are translated into proteins, etc. Um, but in terms of antifungal therapeutics, uh, people try to look for the differences. So, for example, one of the major differences is that fungal cells have a cell wall and mammalian cells do not. Fungi don't have a skeletal system like humans do for support and protection. Instead, they rely on a cell wall, which is also found in plants. This cell wall is composed of molecules not found in human cells and therefore makes it an excellent target for antifungal drugs. And so some of the antifungals target um, cell, that cell wall synthesis. Um, another difference is that fungal cells have a different sterol in their membranes, so they largely have ergosterol, whereas human cells, for example, have cholesterol. And so ergosterol biosynthesis is a major target for antifungals. And there's one um, antifungal in, in particular, amphotericin B, that's used in the setting of very severe fungal infections that um, doesn't target ergosterol synthesis, but amphotericin, this small molecule drug, binds ergosterol um, in the fungal cell membrane and generates a pore. So again, the general theme is to target the differences, but because fungal cells and human cells are so similar, even though our own cells don't have a cell wall, there's a lot of toxicity associated with existing antifungals because there will be side effects often on um, human cells because of some of the similarities. So it's still challenging to identify antifungals that, are, that, that have limited or more limited host toxicity. Not all fungi readily cause disease. Those that do are referred to as pathogenic, which Dr. Sill explains further. The fungal kingdom is this huge, you know, evolutionarily diverse kingdom of organisms, some of which are pathogenic, meaning that they cause disease um, either in, say, a plant host or an animal host. Um, so... Uh, 
that ability to cause disease seems to have evolved multiple times within the fungal kingdom. So it's not like, for example, if you looked at all of these organisms, which include, you know, mushrooms, as well as this, you know, basic uh, genetic system, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. You all may know Saccharomyces cerevisiae as the common baker's yeast, used to make yummy things like bread and beer. For decades, researchers have used this simple unicellular fungus as a model system for understanding the underlying mechanisms by which cells function. It turns out this widely used and arguably beneficial fungus is closely related to histoplasma, which is certainly not beneficial. It's not as though if you looked at the evolution of pathogenesis that it happened once in that kingdom and gave rise to a set of organisms that all can cause disease. It seems to have arisen independently uh, multiple times, and there are fungi that are major uh, pathogens of, of different types of plants. So you know, uh, fungi that can wipe out, um, you know, rice crops or, or wheat um, and cause, you know, sort of billions of dollars worth of crop losses every year annually and are a huge um, scourge for, you know, many populations of people around the world. So those are very important fungal pathogens. Um, and then there are also organisms that cause uh, disease in humans, for example, um, some organisms, some fungal organisms that cause disease are opportunistic pathogens and cause disease in the setting of some um, altered immune status in the host, and others are primary pathogens, meaning that they can cause disease even in the setting of an intact, healthy immune system. And the fungus that I study, uh, Histoplasma capsulatum, is one of those organisms, so it can cause disease even in a healthy individual. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, there are a group of real evolutionary related fungi that have similar characteristics. So they include fungi like um, coccidioides species, which are endemic um, in California and Arizona. Um, they include uh, Blastomyces uh, dermatitidis and other Blastomyces species um, endemic in the Midwestern U.S., and um, Paracoxidioides species like Paracoxidioides brasiliensis and Lutzii that are endemic in um, Latin America, Central America, South America. There are a lot of soil fungi that cause infections similar to Hypsidoplasma capsulatum. Dr. Sill mentioned a few of them. Some examples of these are Coccidioides imitis and Posidaceae, which is commonly known as the cause of valley fever and is found in the southwestern region of the United States. Additionally, Blastomyces dermatitidis is another fungal pathogen that is endemic to the northeastern parts of the United States. Uh, so all of these organisms um, are soil pathogens. So I, I, sh I should say they're soil fungi, um, and in the soil they grow in a multicellular form. Um, and then in a host, they entirely switch their growth program, and uh, they can grow for many of these organisms in a yeast or yeast-like form, which means they grow in a unicellular form. So um, when the cells divide, they become distinct from each other um, in the host. And that seems to, or is thought to, contribute to their ability to cause disease. Um, in the case of coccidioides specifically, it's a, it's a very different kind of host form, but there's still the same distinction of 
growing in a multicellular form in the soil, and that form often produces spores that can aerosolize and be the infectious agent, um, and then a very different form in the host. And for all of these organisms, that transition between the soil form and the host form is regulated by temperature. So somehow these fungi have evolved to sense when they're at mammalian body temperature, which you know is, a, is very much um, a constant in the mammalian environment. So out in the, in the world, the temperature fluctuates a lot. Um, but you know inside the human body or any mammal, you know there are a lot of mechanisms for homeostasis of temperature, so keeping it constant. And, and that um, constant 37 degrees Celsius environment seems to be something that the fungi used use to sense, okay, now I'm in a very different place than I was when I was out in the soil. And they have programs that, um, that allow them to turn on f um, a number of different types of factors that seem to be important for um, initiating establishing and, and maintaining that disease state in the host. So this pathogen just lives in the soil, but is it found everywhere? Where is it from and what allows it to live there? In the U.S., histoplasma is endemic in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys down into Texas, um, but you can find histoplasma all over the world. So I think every continent except for Antarctica um, there's been isolation of histoplasma. And if you, if you do histoplasma literature searches, you can find it um, in all kinds of mammals. So, you know, you name it, there's probably a paper where they've uh, found uh, histoplasma infection in that mammal. So it's pretty widespread. So histoplasma likes to grow in bird droppings and bat guano. So it's often at high density, say, in chicken coops or in caves. So people who explore caves, spelunkers, are a group of people that um, can come down with some severe histoplasma infections because they, if they encounter it, it, there tends to be a high fungal burden, so they'll inhale a lot of spores. But the party line for why histoplasma is endemic in that geographical region is because it likes to grow in bird droppings, um, it's thought to have followed the migration of starlings from from Europe uh, to the U.S. And so I have heard, but I haven't actually done due diligence on this, that there's a high population of, of starlings in that area. Mm. Um, and so there's a correspondingly high fungal burden in those soils. And it, it has, I think, over decades spread, um, you know, beyond that, you know, really densely endemic region, which makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, it's thought to be because it likes to grow in those high nitrogen soils that are high nitrogen as a result of those burn and bat droppings. Interesting. So we've learned what histoplasma is, where it lives, how it enters the body, and how it changes forms due to temperature. But what else can studying histoplasma tell us? Beyond their implications for human health, Studying fungal pathogens may be able to answer many fundamental biological questions. You know, people don't know very much about fungi. So I think one misconception is that, you know, what we will learn from these organisms is relevant only to this set of organisms and only to the diseases that they cause. And I think that that's not true. I think that when, you know, what we study is very basic in the sense that we look at signals, 
um, that the organism senses and pathways that transduce those signals and outputs. So we look at signals, inputs, and outputs. And that's very generalizable to a lot of biological questions. So I would say one misconception is that is is about the potential impact of the research. I think it actually could have a very broad impact, um, not just for thinking about microbes that cause disease, but you know, kind of fundamental ways that cells work. We have you know, kind of the the opportunity to look at you know the organism on its own and how it responds to signals, but then also this rich biological interaction with complex, you know, immune cells and the whole immune system of the host. So there's, there's really a huge unlimited, you know, potential of, you know, questions and answers there with, I would say, you know, quite substantial relevance to many areas of biology. Love that answer. Um, if you had a blank check, what would be your dream study? Oh, there are so many. Um, so, you know, it's it's interesting because I think that, you know, the current funding climate actually constrains, you know, scientific thinking because, um, you know, funding is funding is tight, and we have to sometimes, um, you know, think about very uh, concrete types of experiments that are likely to yield some information. And of course, we all want to do research that, um, you know, has some tangible output and benefit at the end. So I don't, I don't, you know, argue with the idea that there should be, you know, there should be um, really some, some concrete paths and outcomes. But because almost every funding source is looking for something like that, um, I rarely get an opportunity to think, you know, if I could have all the money in the world, what would I do? So I feel somewhat unprepared <clears throat> to answer that question. But, um, you know, as a fungal biologist, uh, someone who really loves these organisms that are understudied, I would probably <clears throat> embark on a set of studies, you know, really, really trying to dissect out the biology of these systems. So growing multiple different organisms, ones that cause disease and others that don't, you know, having sort of an infinite biosafety, you know, containment facility where we could do, you know, one of the, one of the challenges with these things that cause, you know, disease in healthy hosts and thus require biocontainment is that very few facilities are outfitted with the types of technology that we can use in, you know, other, you know, for other less dangerous organisms. So I would love to have, you know, the capacity to do high throughput flow cytometry in a BSL-3 environment where we could really um, use um, robust and powerful molecular techniques to dissect out interactions with the host or um, other types of critical um, elements of the biology. And, you know, I feel that there's a lot to be learned from evolutionary relationships between organisms. So, you know, we can, in my lab, we grow histoplasma, we're just starting to grow coccidioides, we have grown blastomyces, so all of these related organisms. But there's, you know, thousands of 
related organisms, you know, in between those, again, some of which cause disease and others of which don't, and sort of trying to do some comprehensive analysis of um, genes and pathways that are conserved between these and that are different between these, I think would really inform uh, the biology. So I'm waiting for that blank check, (laughs) if anyone anyone has it. (laughs) Send it my way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Do you have any words of advice for young scientists? Yes, I would say, um, you know, every, all all of us can get daunted by, um, you know, and science is, is big and inspiring, but also overwhelming. And there are a lot of roadblocks. You asked earlier about, you know, sort of scientific roadblocks. But there are many scientific and non-scientific roadblocks on the path of science. You know, some of those are trying to figure out how to follow a, a passion while dealing with financial constraints or even, you know, like family constraints, like real life. Like how do you balance, you know, science requires a lot. It's not a nine-to-five job, and how do you balance that with the other things that you want to do, you know, in your life? So my advice would be, you know, on those days where you feel the overwhelming part and not the inspiring part, you know, keep yourself going. Try to break down, you know, big questions into smaller ones, ones that you can manage. Um, Have faith that if you're doing something that you're excited about, and you have good mentorship. So one big piece of advice is seek out and find good mentors, like those people who are going to care about your career development and who are going to give you input. No one does science in a vacuum. So find those people. They are there um, who, you know, who will help you in a really genuine and unselfish way. Um, and keep in touch with those people, but keep yourself going. Like, just know if you're studying something that you're interested in and that is, um, you know, what I would call an interesting question, something where you're not just looking at something very small, but where you can define why it's broadly interesting, there will be a, a tangible result. You know, just keep the faith, I guess, you know, keep yourself keep yourself going, and find a community because, you know, um, networking is important. Getting ideas from other people is important. You know, I think in the beginning, it's very hard to feel, to, it's, it's hard to be, well, it's not hard for some people, but <laughs> I, I think it's, it can be challenging to be confident about your science. And that confidence comes with time, you know, as you make more discoveries that, of course, builds your confidence. But in those early stages, you know, find a supportive community and be open to criticism. So when someone tells you, you know, I think you could do a better job with that, or, you know, have you considered these alternative approaches, you know, be open to that, like be, be confident enough that you can hear the value in a different suggestion, you know, rather than feeling it's, it's very easy for some of us, when we hear those other suggestions, to feel bad about not having thought of them ourselves or 
to feel, you know, like a loss of, oh, I've been going down this path and maybe this other path would have been more productive. And so, you know, be up for the challenge of, you know, open-mindedness and, you know, thinking about other approaches and leaving aside, you know, criticism and just seeing the positive, potential positive impact of, um, you know, again, those, those other approaches or other methodologies or other questions. So I think resilience is probably the most, one of the most important qualities in a scientist, like just being able to get back up again or get back into the lab the next day, you know, when something goes wrong, just got to keep yourself going. So in summary, be resilient, have multiple forms, just like histoplasma. RadioBio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for RadioBio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support RadioBio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net. This episode was produced and edited by Jeff Lauder. Episode artwork was created by Kinsey Brock. Special thanks to SACNES at UC Merced for helping sponsor Dr. Sill's campus visit.